We don't often think of animals as war casualties, but animals die in large numbers in every war. Sometimes as specific targets to deprive the enemy of a food source, sometimes trapped in zoos and shelters, and other times as wildlife. But their deaths are never officially counted, and the senseless killing of animals, unlike the killing of innocent civilians, is not considered a war crime. So do we have special moral duties towards animals in war, given that they have no conception of what war is, and it is something imposed on them by humans? To what extent does our treatment of animals during war reflect our treatment of animals, particularly those raised for industrial farming, during peacetimes? And why, despite the clarity of the moral arguments against the mistreatment of animals in industrial farming and the mass consumption of their meat, do so many of us keep eating animals? Can philosophical arguments really change people's behaviour? Welcome to The Philosopher and the News. I'm Alexis Papazoglu. This week, I welcome to the podcast Laurie Gruen. She is the William Griffin Professor of Philosophy at Wesleyan University and a leading scholar in animal studies and feminist philosophy. She is the author and editor of over a dozen books, including Ethics and Animals, An Introduction, Entangled Empathy, and the forthcoming Animal Crisis, co-authored with the philosopher Alice Crary. Part of this conversation was originally recorded in February, but soon after the war in Ukraine started and the episode's publication got postponed. Recently, however, Laurie Grin got in touch again and suggested we add to the discussion a segment about war and animals, which we did, and you will hear that part of our conversation first. This suddenly transformed our earlier recording about animal ethics from irrelevant to the current news cycle is central in understanding our stance towards animals during war, but also during peacetimes. Laurie Gruen, welcome back to The Philosopher in the News. Thanks for having me back. So we recorded an episode on veganism and the nature of our obligations and the nature of our relationships towards animals uh, around the end of February. And then the war in Ukraine broke out and releasing the episode got postponed since, you know, the news cycle um, had really shifted gears. But you wrote to me and asked whether we could supplement that episode with a discussion about the horrors that the animals are suffering in the war. Um, you mentioned zoos and shelters as well as wildlife. And it's true that we don't often think of animals as casualties of war. Um, but as George Packer pointed out in a, in a short piece in The Atlantic, animals die in very large numbers in every war, and their deaths very rarely get officially counted. 
Um, I think some might think it's a bit of a luxury to talk about animal casualties during a war when we have so many human casualties and human suffering to deal with. But what do you think of that sort of attitude and why is it that we forget to talk about animal casualties in wars? Well, I think one of the reasons we forget is precisely what you said, that there's so much human suffering and human pain that is on everyone's mind. And of course, infrastructures that humans need to sort of continue their existence are also destroyed. But importantly, we have brought a number of different kinds of animals into those human-centered infrastructures. And in that way, we also have a responsibility to them. And that's part of why I was raising this issue of zoos. Um, here we have wild animals that are in captivity. They have absolutely no way to get food or protection on their own. They rely on humans entirely. Um, and so when there aren't humans there to care for them, um, that's pretty much a death sentence for them. I think one of the things that's become really important to understand is that our relationships with other animals are very important to many of the humans. And I think many of the early images that we saw of people fleeing from the devastation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, many of the people in the subways and make trying to make their ways to trains, mm -hmm. they had their companion animals with them. We saw images of dogs and cats being cared for by refugees trying to make their way, and they weren't going to leave their animals behind. This started, I think, um, we started to see people not willing to leave their animals during the horrible flooding that occurred during Katrina in the U.S., um, in Louisiana. And I think increasingly people are recognizing that uh, domesticated animals, dogs and cats in particular, also birds, um, are really important to human families, and they're not going to comfortably leave those animals behind. Mm -hmm. And so we started to see that at the beginning of the, the invasion of Ukraine, Um, but then we also started to hear more about shelter animals, dogs and cats in shelters, um, starving, and um, zoos. There's three major zoos in Ukraine, all of which have been um, devastated in various ways by the war. Um, I read this week that uh, two of the humans who stayed behind to care for some of the animals in, in a zoo outside of Kiev were shot and found um, They were uh, killed by um, Russian soldiers. Um, so there's a there's a lot of bravery that's required for humans to stay behind with the animals in the zoos. There's also a lot of danger because the the zoos, um, you know, often house dangerous wild animals, and if their enclosures are destroyed, that creates a, a series of problems. Also, I just want to add that you know, in terms of wildlife. The wildlife are also um, devastated by bombs and the, not just the noise, and but the fires and uh, the devastation that um, comes from sort of war. So there's a lot of different animals that have been impacted by this war and by all wars. Mm. Uh, there's a lot there, and I'll, I hope we'll unpack them in, in some of the follow-up questions. But one of the things that stuck in my mind from what you said is that, you know, war is something completely alien to animals. It doesn't really belong to the world, and we sort of impose it on them. We've brought them into our worlds, either 
by having them as pets, or as you said, in, in zoos and and in shelters, and we somehow, you know, bring this catastrophic human activity to them. Does that sort of entail that we have kind of special duties towards animals in war and a different kind of duty, a different different in nature from those that we have towards animals, specifically because of that um, fact that they're they're sort of they have absolute no say in the matter and also no way of really conceptualizing what's happening and why you know why there are bombs exploding around them and um, fires starting and so on yeah i mean i think that there are important ways in which these are continuous responsibilities that we have to those that are let's say our captives um I think in the context of wild animals, it is a special responsibility. Um, we may have a responsibility, say, to not interfere with the sovereign existence of wild animals, we might think. Um, but in these conditions, when we're actually violently invading their homes, and that might actually, in the case of the wild animals, sort of warrant a discussion about a certain kind of reparative intervention, perhaps, that would be ethically um, required, or at least worth worth discussing. But in the case of captive animals, I think these are duties that and responsibilities that we have, um, even in absent war, they just become more vivid to us um, when the conditions are so horrendous as they are in wartime. Mm-hmm. So something else that um, I read when when looking at the subject is that animals are often you know, the targets of war uh, often farm animals because they're a source of food for those under attack. And, um, you know, it's a way of it's a way of weakening um, the enemy. But Russia also seems to be targeting animal shelters, as you mentioned, um, sometimes um, even pets that are left behind. And it seems like it's a kind of act of kind of pure cruelty towards both the animals, but also Ukrainians and, and what they hold dear. Is it a war crime to kill animals? And if not, why not? Yeah, I, I, that's an important and, and really interesting question. And I, I think it's not, we're not quite at a place where we can think about it as, you know, a war crime in the way that they're now um, suggesting that assassination of civilians mm-hmm. um, allegedly that occurred um, would rise to the level of war crime. But importantly, the intention is exactly the same. It's to terrorize and exert a form of violent domination. And in that sense, I think there's something sort of profoundly ethically questionable, and that's a mild way of putting it, but I mean, really, that there's the desire is to terrorize. And if that's the desire, I think that that does raise important questions about um, war war crimes. Since our our previous discussion was around the way we relate to animals mostly as a, a sort of source of food, to what extent do you think the kind of attitude towards animals in war is influenced by the way we relate to animals in, in time of peace, um, in particular the way we treat animals that are raised for industrial farming and, and slaughter. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. I mean, we do think of 
Um, I mean, the system of, as I mentioned, um, the system of, of food production is an inherently violent system where animals are born disabled and killed for consumption. So one might ask rightly, well, what, well, why is war killing them in war different than killing them for food? I think we get some inclination of this from some of the things that happened during the COVID, the height of the COVID pandemic, when um, many, many farmers had to kill their own animals um, instead of sending them to slaughter partly because the slaughterhouses were considered hotspots and were closed um, for that period of time in early 2020, at least in the United States. And one of the things that was really interesting and apparent was that there is a sense in which people who are involved in raising animals for slaughter sort of see what they're doing as part of a process of providing food as you know from our conversation, that uh, raises a whole host of ethical questions from my point of view. But um, when you're just killing the farm animals to kill them, and there's no there's no purpose, this raises a number of um, worries. And even farmers who are in the business of raising and killing animals for food were taken aback by the the waste and the uselessness of killing animals for the just because you had to kill the animals. And I think that in the case of war, we have the same sort of situation. Now, I'm, as you know, I'm not um, in, in favor of killing animals for food. So the idea of killing them just to kill them is um, even more horrendous. But I think um, in wartime, what we're looking at is uh, just an expansion of the devastation um, and the ethical problems that are associated with that devastation for humans and for non-humans. And I think it's important that we not forget the animals um, that are also the victims of this um, violent incursion into Ukraine. One of the stories I, I saw was um, about an American who traveled from the US to Ukraine to go and help in, in animal shelters. I think it was uh, dog shelters in particular. Part of your thesis about how we should sort of reconceptualize our ethical stance towards animals is through what you call entangled empathy. To what extent do you does seeing animals being sort of the helpless victims of war ignite this kind of empathy that we have the ability to feel towards animals um, that are a different species from, from our own? Thanks for asking that question. Um, I think it's, uh, as I suggested earlier, that the images of people huddled together in subway stations um, look trying to seek shelter with their companion animals, I think really helps us to see just how horrifying um, the conditions are um, for living beings who are under tremendous threat and vulnerable um, living quite precariously um, in these war zones. And so I do think it being able to hear these stories and see these images um, does enhance our um, ability to empathize with these situations. Um, and I think, you know, watching a family with their children and their dog traipsing along to try to get to safety is a really um, horrifying and moving image. And it we extend not just our humanity, but our beingness. We these are these are beings, these are living beings who 
through no fault of their own, um, are in a precarious, dangerous position. Um, and those are the kinds of um, visual pieces of information that can certainly enhance our empathy. What do you think should happen so that we begin thinking of animals more systematically when things like wars happen? Should the media be talking more about it? Should we begin legislation to include the senseless killing of animals in wars, war crimes? What what are the steps that we need to take to kind of raise consciousness about the fact that wars don't only have human casualties and infrastructure casualties and economic casualties, but they also have animal casualties. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really um, important uh, set of issues to think about. And I, I know that there's been some um, really important work. Um, there was a, a illustrated or graphic novel about the Baghdad Zoo. I think the zoo issue is a really important issue that doesn't get as much attention as it should. I would suggest that zoos um, should be off limit for any violent assault. Um, certainly, we know and have heard across Europe, there's been accidents where uh, there was one in Germany not too long ago on New Year's Day when a firework um, fireworks on New Year's led to a terrible, tragic fire where many great apes burned to death at the zoo. Um, of course, the obvious thing there is that there should be um, sp- sprinklers and other, you know, sort of fire protection in in place at all zoos um, to prevent uh, fires from causing that level of damage. But at the level of bombing. Um, there should be uh, kind of zones that are off limits. And I think zoos should be within the zones of off limit to um, destruction. And that if a a combat sort of, if an invader or someone, uh, a a country is waging war against another country and does um, send missiles into zoos, that should be, I would argue, considered a war crime. Of course, we'd have to set it up so that it, it, was already uh, determined that you can't that you can't bomb zoos, um, and the reason that we shouldn't do that is because the animals have no way out, and they are sort of not involved in any sense, as you said earlier. They did not participate in their captivity. They did not agree to their captivity. They are there unwillingly, um, and so to put them in particular. Uh, fire that humans are are creating um, is a particularly egregious assault. Um, I think the same thing should be true and is true um, for hospitals um, and nursing homes and should also be the case for animal shelters. Mm-hmm. I think farms are going to be a different issue. As you say, it's a, it's a strategic um, assault point and animals in uh, factory farms are um, destined to be slaughtered in any event. So that raises a host of complicated questions. But I think there is important um, work to be done to elevate our understanding of the devastation that war causes not just humans, innocent civilians, but also innocent animals. 
Is there anything else you wanted to raise in relation to animal ethics and the war? I, th I think one of the things that is, is really um, heartening and inspiring is that there's tremendous amount of human bravery. Um, people are staying to try to feed animals. As you mentioned, um, there are some Americans and others that have gone to Ukraine to try to help protect animals. So one of the things that the crisis brings out is that there is genuine um, connection and concern with the animal victims of the war. And people are being remarkably brave. Some people are being remarkably brave um, to try to lend a hand and protect those um, innocent animals. As always, this podcast is created in partnership with The Philosopher, the UK's longest-running public philosophy journal. To find out more about the journal, its online events, and to order a copy of its latest issue, go to www.thephilosopher1923.org. And now, the second part of our conversation with Laurie Gruen. So I'd like to talk about this piece that you wrote for The Philosopher uh, called What Motivates Us to Change What We Eat. And you start that piece with an exchange you had with a fellow philosopher in which they were saying that Burger King introduced a, a vegan burger and that this would make their transi transition into veganism easier. You sound a little bit disappointed in your friend in that essay. Why is that? Well, I I disappointed only slightly. I realized that many people are just accustomed to eating mammals and birds and, and fish um, as a daily matter of fact. And so mm -hmm. uh, the reason I was concerned in this case was that one might expect that philosophers who are used to arguing with one another. And generally, when they agree with the conclusion of an argument, will act accordingly. And the disappointment was not a personalized disappointment, but a general disappointment that philosophers who recognize the ills of and the harms of, of consuming animals still do it um, and need more motivation. Yeah. So we'll get to the power of reason and philosophers and how reason might or might not have the power to change our behavior. But I'd like to stay just for a minute on the power and the moral status of devices like meat replacement products, like vegan burgers, in changing people's eating habits. Um, we're also speaking in February, a month after what in the UK is called Veganuary. Uh, I don't know if you have that in the States. Yeah, it's a kind of equivalent of dry January, I guess, in which there's a annual uh, challenge run by a non-profit organization that encourages people to sort of adopt a vegan lifestyle, as it were, for the month of January, at least. Are these things sort of cheap tricks, as it were, to change our behavior and do they help us avoid dealing with like the bigger ethical questions at the heart of why we should be vegan? I, you know, I, I have, I'm of two minds about that. I don't think they're cheap tricks because I do think when one uh, experiences how, um, I don't want to say easy, but how sort of 
reasonable um, and feasible it is to eat a vegan diet, um, I think that can go a long way to helping people um, really seriously consider doing it um, as a, mm-hmm. an everyday practice. So I do think that there's something more than just kind of a trick in, associated with a, a month of going vegan. Um, so I do think that's important. And in the process of doing that, one exposes oneself to a whole variety of foodstuffs that they might not have otherwise, plant-based foods, plant-based proteins. And they can also see that, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's a certainly a plausible, feasible way of going. Um, it's not expensive or more expensive. It can be more expensive, but so can eating, um, animals. Um, and that, people generally tend to feel good when they do it. So I think it's a, it's a good experiment. Um, I do think, however, that the data suggests that people don't really stay with it. So that's the, mm. the sort of other side of, of the device, as it were. People try it for a month and think, okay, I did yeah. that for a month. Um, now I'll go back to my old ways. Mm. This sort of reminds me a little bit of a, a kind of Aristotelian approach to ethics um in which sort of you know our behavior isn't necessarily motivated originally by reasons we have to kind of get in the habit of doing something and then after doing it for a while we sort of adopt it as a behavior and then also begin to kind of see the reasons behind it and so on so is there is that too high highfalutin as it were or do you think there's something into that i do think there's something into that i don't think it's too highfalutin i mean the idea of sort of habit formation that then um is followed by reason giving i think is is not just uh, an ancient way of thinking about behavior change, but it's a part of many theories in psychology that suggests that actually much of the time what we're doing is engaging in post hoc reasoning, um, that our motivations aren't really driven by reasons prior to the action, but end up happening after the fact. So I think that that's um, having that experience. I think having ex- the experience of trying veganism um, is actually a, a very um, useful way of thinking, as I was saying, that oh, I could do this. This isn't this isn't quite as hard as I thought. I'm not giving up as much as I thought. And then you could develop a practice um, that may be replicated after January. At the center of your article lies another question, also an ancient uh, question, or a question at least arriving to us from from ancient Greek philosophy. Um, maybe less of a question, but a fundamental assumption that. People act immorally out of ignorance of what's good. And we see that thought already in the mouth of Socrates in, in Plato's dialogues. And you talk about this in your piece. You say, well, you know, there's a kind of assumption there. Um, and if it were true, we'd expect people who, you know, study what is good, ethics professors, uh, the very people who put forward arguments about what might be morally acceptable, what might not be morally acceptable, to be some of the most sort of ethical people around, um, for for their work to be reflected in their behaviour, as it were. Yet that doesn't seem to be the case, according to a survey uh, of how ethics professors, to begin with, think about the relationship between their work and their life, but also how their work affects their life and their behaviour. Can you tell us a little bit about this survey and mm-hmm. what conclusions do you draw from it? 
Yes, I think so. This is a work that's um, been going on for quite a long time by philosophy uh, professor Eric Schwitzgebel, who is somebody who's doing some empirical study of all sorts of things about attitudes and, and behavior. But in this particular survey, what he did was he asked um, ethics pr- professors and philosophers more generally whether they thought that eating meat on a regular basis was morally bad in some way or other. And he found that the majority of ethics professors did find that eating animal products was morally bad. But it turns out that only a little... Um, a little less than half of them didn't do it. So another way of putting that is that, so 60% of the ethics ethics professors thought that um, eating meat was morally bad, yet 37% of them decided to go ahead and eat meat last night. Um, So this suggests a variety of things. And it, it concerned me because if those people who can make arguments before undergraduates, before graduate students, perhaps their colleagues, if they're making the arguments that it is in fact morally bad to eat animal products, why are they not foregoing that? Um, it, that disconnect was a, is a real concern of mine. And it's much more concerning than my friend, who's not an ethics professor, um, who thought maybe the Impossible Burger or at, at um, Burger King may be, um, make it easier. But here we have um, people who I would want to say should know better that the conclusions of your argument should have some motivational pull. Mm. So is this a demonstration of reason's impotence to change our behavior, as it were? Is it is it to do with what we sometimes call in philosophy the weakness of the will, um, you know, the, the, the phenomenon when despite knowing what's morally right, we sort of fail to act on that knowledge or is something else going on altogether? I think that's a really great question. I mean, it could be acrasia to a certain extent. I think there is a certain kind of weakness of will involved in the perpetuation of doing something morally bad. But for me, I think it's actually um, really raises some deeper questions about our methods of moral reasoning and Mm -hmm. what we're expecting our philosophical arguments, particularly in the sphere of ethics, to be doing. So before we go into the uh, sort of alternative approach that you that you offer should we talk a little bit about what the usual arguments are in philosophy that ethicists put forward about why eating animals is is morally wrong and they sort of fall into two broad categories and can you tell us about them yes exactly so the typical argument that's been made um, for vegetarianism and veganism focuses in on the suffering of the animals and birds who you know, and fish who are um, used by the billions f- across the globe for food and their suffering is intense. And traditionally utilitarian theory and particularly that uh, a version of utilitarianism, a hedonistic version and a maximizing version of, of utilitarianism that's been proposed um, and advocated by Peter Singer, for example, suggests that what we ought to do whenever we're determining a uh, the course of action that is going to be considered the right or good course of action is to do that, which is going to minimize suffering, all things considered. So what he means is if you take all of the creatures, humans and non-humans that suffer, 
um, by your action. If the suffering of doing the action outweighs the pleasure of doing the action, then the right thing to do by this account is to not do the action if the suffering is greater than the pleasure produced by the action. Um, and that's a very uh, important theory precisely because it highlights not just the sort of worries about suffering, but the ubiquity of suffering, the wide range of suffering, the suffering that happens not just with other humans, but with other animals. So in many ways, this theory um, when animal ethics developed, say around 50 years ago, or as it's been developing, um, just making philosophers, students, people in general, um, more aware that animals suffer in the production of food stuff is, was a very, very important um, insight. And it really did change a landscape as it were. But you would think 50 years later that given the power and the simplicity of the utilitarian argument that you would have more widespread um, vegetarianism and veganism, or at least you would have a minimization of the suffering, um, the mass suffering and violence that animals experience. And we see exactly the opposite. The consumption of meat projects, products has been going up across the globe. So utilitarianism was important in um, helping to highlight that other animals suffer, uh, but it hasn't really had a whole lot of impact or effectiveness. And does that argument focus more on the methods of it, 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 through which we rear animals and and consume them, or would it apply to eating animals full stop? Would you say so? We we were sort of all aware that um, mass produced uh, meat products come from animals that don't have very good lives. They they live in conditions that are really not very nice to them, and they generally can be said to to not have good lives they they suffer through those lives you might someone might say well what if you could have you know what if you could secure your meat from sources that guarantee somehow that the quality of life of those animals was was high you know up until obviously the moment of their death does utilitarianism and that sort of peter singer type argument that wants us to acknowledge that animals can also suffer um do something for, for for that argument as well, for the argument that says, well, it's just that the problem is is not with eating animals, the problem is eating these particular animals that yes. have been reared in these terrible ways. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, I think the idea for the uh, utilitarian is that what we ought to do is uh, minimize suffering if we could minimize suffering. Um, and that includes human suffering. Um, if we can minimize it or if our actions will ultimately, as I said, on balance lead to more pleasure over pain and suffering, then that we will be morally justified in that action. So if it were possible, and I, this is a big if, but if it were possible to raise enough animals humanely, um, a utilitarian wouldn't necessarily object um, to that as long as they were, there's two conditions here, as long as um, they were replaced by other happy animals. Of course, what we're trying to do is maximize happiness for the utilitarians as well. So we want to make sure that we're not killing an animal and then snuffing out their future happiness 
But if we replace that animal with another happy animal, um, and therefore the happiness uh, in the universe stays about the same, maybe even increases because people get enjoyment out of eating happy animals, then a utilitarian would be fine with that. And I think that's important. So there's two features of utilitarianism that really make it clear that they're opposed to mass violence and suffering in the production of animal products. And that's the current state of um, food production when it comes to animals. But if that were to change and animals were replaced with other happy animals, a utilitarian wouldn't object necessarily to killing and eating animals. And that's where the second sort of predominant view comes into play because for people in a more deontological tradition, a tradition that follows from philosopher Immanuel Kant, uh, Tom Reagan in the animal realm was the person who first initiated this way of thinking in a, in a book um, in 1985 called The Case for Animal Rights. And what that perspective argues, and um, Christine Korsgaard has most recently been a very vivid proponent of this view is that no suffering it's sure suffering matters but it's not the only thing or even the primary thing that matters ultimately valuing and respecting individuals autonomies their bodily integrity their capacities to um live meaningful lives that's ultimately what matters whether or not those lives are as rich and robust as a philosopher's life um, or um, hu other humans life a, a creative literary person just a very loving family person all of those values that we um, make think make our lives meaningful are tied to us we individually find our lives meaningful and valuable and by killing us, even painlessly, for some greater good, violates what Tom Reagan would call our rights or what Chris Korsgaard might call our, our tethered mm. value. Some people might find the idea that, of animal rights a bit sort of perplexing because maybe of the way in which rights are entangled in the legal system and, and seen more of a kind of human construct, perhaps by some people. What's a way that we can think about this approach that would make thinking about animals having certain rights, as it were, um, less maybe alien? It's you no, know, it's a great question. I think that the 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 issue of rights is quite confusing. Um, I think um, there are um, legal rights that exist to certain extent to protect animals against sort of extreme cruelty in very specific contexts, not in all contexts. Um, so there are some legal protections that you might think of as rights are legal protections. In the case of in in the case of ethics, we tend to think of moral rights um, as claims against another. Um, and that's how I believe um, Tom Reagan and Chris Korsgaard were thinking about the issue and also a couple of philosophers in Canada, Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka, think about rights as a certain set of claims or protections um, that others are morally um, required to um, adhere to, that is not violate. So there's a certain kind of protection that animals might have that's grounded in the value of their lives um, that the rest of us should respect. 
Mm-hmm. I found interesting in your piece when you go a little bit more into detail about how Christine Korsgaard thinks about um, about applying this this line of reasoning to to animal ethics about the fact that she recognizes a certain argument that I think is sort of around maybe maybe only in philosophy but I think to some extent seeps through into popular culture as well this idea that well animals you know they don't really understand what it is to have a life <laughs> in the way that humans do humans have a certain self-conception of themselves of their goals of their futures and that's kind of what makes their life valuable to them and Korsgaard kind of recognizes to some extent that, yeah, you know, maybe animals don't have that capacity to reflect on their lives in the way that humans do. But she doesn't think that that then means that um, the life of an animal isn't valuable to to that animal, that somehow that that value is irrespective, um, independent of of being being able to to reflect on it and have that kind of more human capacity. Can you can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I mean I think that the idea here is that um, we all have very different and distinctive ways of valuing things, valuing our lives. And in the case of certain humans, maybe not all humans, but most humans, um, we're able to self-reflect and as she puts it, we can endorse our maxims endorse our our decisions to act our principles of action um and we can also change um our views that we are autonomous in that capacity we're able to think for ourselves about what matters to us um endorse that as mattering to us and act accordingly that's a fairly um high level of engagement and she calls that that capacity, a source of our source of normativity. It's what it it's what's distinctive about many humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one source of value. But what she argues um, is that there are other sources of value. Um, and so humans and animals, or most humans and most animals are different, um, or potentially different in this way. But that doesn't mean that their lives don't matter to them, that they aren't making choices that they, if the concept of endorsement would matter, um, that they might endorse, that they do make certain kinds of decisions that we can understand as being relevant to their sense of a meaningful life, um, that their lives matter to them. And certainly they act to avoid suffering and act to avoid pain, act to protect um, their young Mm -hmm. Um, act to protect their territories, all of these sorts of things suggest that their lives too are meaningful, even if they couldn't in a full-blown rational sense endorse the their will to act. So what do you see as the limitations of, of these two types of arguments, the utilitarian type of argument that we talked about, the Peter Singer one, and this more deontological, as you said, um, argument, the one that rests on certain more abstract moral principles. Is this abstraction part of the problem here? And and is it what explains why these arguments aren't motivating enough when it comes to changing our behavior? So I, these are two extremely powerful and important 
moral theories. We've seen these moral theories operating um, in ethical discussions for centuries, and they're quite um, compelling. However, they are, as you say, um, rather abstract. And in a certain way, um, I want to suggest that they might actually be self-defeating. And the ways in which I think they might be self-defeating has to do with the conception of value that is implicit in both the theories, even though it's quite they're quite distinct theories. And by that, what I mean is the conception of value is one that to a certain degree is impartial or external and based on reason. And I, I think that the, it's precisely there, and this is not new to me. I mean, this is what Michael Smith called the moral problem. Uh, this is a problem that developed between um, David Hume and Kant about what's the primary motivation for ethical behavior. Is it reason? Is it something more sentimental or emotional? Um, and I think, I think here, um, is really the problem with these theories, particularly when it comes to, as you put it, um, radical, more radical social change in terms of understanding animals that historically have been thought to be less valuable. I mean, as you were suggesting earlier, having rights seems kind of absurd when we, when we talk about animals. The reason it sounds absurd is because we don't think of animals as being part of the moral, ethical, political sphere or legal sphere. And we rarely have thought that in the course of our own um, intellectual and historical development. And so my view is that given the sort of status quo attitudes about the distinction between humans and animals, as well as this abstract, external view that's based on reason, we miss what's fundamentally at issue when we're trying to think about other animals. And for me, one way to change that motivational gap that comes from a very um, external moral theory, when I say external, it's like the theory is outside of me and I, I have to think about how do I conform myself to that theory? And it's in the process of conforming to that theory that I'm somehow values become alive to me. But rather, I'm thinking and I have argued that the values are already alive. We just need to sort of t clear out the, if you will, ideology um, that puts animals and humans in totally different spheres and recognize that we're in deep relationships with them. And in addition to the deep relationships we're in with them, those relationships aren't particularly good relationships. So here, what I'm, I'm suggesting is that if we were to think much more particularly about our relationships, all of our relationships with everything that we're in relation with, um, we might have a different starting place um, for trying to determine how to best act. Mm. Yeah, so in that direction, you have a, a quote in the essay, which I really like, and it goes, um, it is often the richness of an individual's experiences and relationships that helps us to understand what is valuable and what matters, and thus what is lost or gained when we act or fail to act in particular ways. 
And you go on to say paying attention to the particularities of those relationships and experiences may provide more force in guiding moral action. So could you tell us a bit more about that approach? What would an ethics that starts by thinking of our own experiences and our relationships look look like? And how would it be different to the the two main types of ethical theories that we have at our hands at the moment. Right. So I think what I've, there's a number of different ways of thinking about um, this particular um, framework. I'm not sort of new or alone in thinking of it, but what is different about my approach is that I argue in favor of a view I call entangled empathy. Um, And what entangled empathy does as an alternative to these standard approaches is recognizes, as you um, put it from my words, that we're in these entanglements, both near and far, these relationships that actually are the source of our values. Um, It's where our values spring from. And so attending to these relationships, both through reflection and reason and through our connections and emotional or effective engagement with others is really a central part of the the meaning of our lives and a central part of how it is that we come to understand value. Um, And what what I argue in thinking about entangled empathy is that um, really at its base, the reason I think that entangled empathy has a way of solving the motivational problem that we started with, and I hope we talk a little bit more about, is that um, we're in these relationships. Once we recognize and take on the view that we're in these relationships and we see that these relationships aren't good relationships, they're destructive, exploitative, violent um, relationships where we imagine the other as disposable, um, nobody would really endorse that. I, I, I don't know anyone who would say, oh yeah, my relationship with my family is bad. I know a lot of people who would say the relationship with their family is bad, but they don't think that's a good thing, that they're just going to leave it alone. Mm. Um, And so that's part of where the motivation to change um, one's behavior can come from, a recognition after reflection, after feeling um, that this isn't a good relationship. And I don't want to be a person who is content, satisfied being in bad relationships. So the way in which you, you, you start when you, you talk about thinking about our relationships to, to other animals is to think of the ones that we, that we have um, that, are, that are the closest to us. So many of us, for example, have pets, um, cats, dogs, whatever it might be. And we generally find those relationships quite meaningful, very important to us. We care about our our pets a lot. Uh, we love them maybe even. Um, and in your piece, you talk about your relationship to a, a chimpanzee named Emma and how that relationship had a huge impact on on you and how you thought about your relationship to animals more generally. So my question, I guess, is how do we... So you might, you might point to the fact that, you know, this is again, just another cognitive incoherence and dissonance on our part. We love our pets, we wouldn't dream of mistreating them um, in, in any way, yet we are aware that, you know, millions of animals are mistreated at the same time and, and we benefit from that by, you know, consuming their products. 
So yeah, it's how complicated. Do we, how, do we, yeah, how do we make the move from from thinking of these kind of relationships that are very close to us and that we can we have we we have every day to day, and then use those as a model to thinking about relationships with animals that we will never meet, we never see. You know, part of the problem to, to in some people's minds is that this this kind of meat industry and dairy industry is kind of out of sight for most people. We don't actually get to see what what goes on so how do we make the jump from from one to the other as it were yeah well i think it's not a jump as much as it's a continuum and it really does require a fair amount of moral imagination um i think that um part of what happens when we're in our relationships with our companion animals dogs and cats that you know increasingly are spoken about as members of families right. and, and whatnot, um, that we use the skills we develop in those relationships, skills to navigate difference, um, to imagine, and also skills of noticing how our companion dogs and cats are happy and sad and um, how they have distinct personalities. Um, and once we are engaged in those relationships in what I would call an entangled empathetic way, we're developing tools, we're developing skills of perception, moral perception, um, to apply to uh, relations that might be farther from us. Um, and I like to think of this um, in this way, those of us who have children or those of us who have nieces and nephews, um, and maybe those of us in the abstract who just respect and value children, um, don't just value children in our own families or in our own neighborhoods, but we value children who are being exploited in cacao um, production for chocolate in parts of Africa. We, we value the children who are working in poor conditions in parts of Bangladesh. We, we don't just value those that are immediately present to us. Um, we can empathize once we have experiences with children. We were all children once, of course, too. But this is an important set of skills that we can move beyond. Um, and I think this is the same thing that we can do with the immediate animals um, that we might have relationships with. And we can, from that point, take the skills and take the understanding of the ways in which these distinctive beings have um, inde independent concerns, are not merely extensions of us, um, and that they have their own lives, and that that is also the case with animals that we might not directly encounter, as you really rightly point out, that are out of sight. The other part of this, of course, given that the animals are out of sight, is to make them more visible to us. And I think that's another practice that um, both philosophers and activists can be engaged in um, as a way of helping to um, inform and develop a kind of capacity for moral imagination if we have better sense of what's happening to these other animals, not just in factory farms, but in Indonesia with palm oil plantations, orangutans and forest elephants and other animals that are being wiped out because of um, the deforestation that's involved. So that when you buy a product, it needn't just be a hamburger, um, but it could also be Girl Scout cookies um, that use palm oil. Um, mm -hmm. You might think, 
wow, what, where is this palm oil coming from? And in much the same way that sweatshop labor issues became a, a concern for people who were buying products, they might not know the people who were being exploited in the production of cheap t-shirts, but they made an effort um, to make to become aware of the conditions and make different choices about what it was that they were going to consume. So is this, uh, is the idea behind entangled empathy, I mean, we'll talk about the empathy bit in a minute, but is the entangled bit supposed to indicate how we are interdependent basically with other beings, so other human beings that again, are sort of in other countries and we might never meet, but whose lives are deeply linked to ours in ways that we're often unaware. Um, so is the idea to to see those relationships, as it were, as existing in the first place? Mm -hmm. Is that part of the, the exercise to, yes. to realise yes, that, you know, we are in relationships with these other beings, whether we whether we were aware of it or not? Right, or whether we know them or not, um, that these entanglements in this global world that we live in, they could be economic relationships, they can be ecological relationships, increasingly important topic. Um, they could be political relationships. Um, they can be exploitative relationships. We could just be consumers um, of a product that the supply chain uh, is sort of vast and we never really see the origin or the disposal. Um, so the entanglement is both a recognition of the various relationships that exist um, and that we're a part of, but also a recognition that these are relationships that shape us, that, that make our lives possible, um, that make who we are possible. So um, the entanglement is, is not something that ultimately can be disentangled. It's a if you will, it's a permanent feature of our existence. And what it does is puts us in these relationships that we um, need to address and help to shape by actions that we may not actually even, as you said, know about or mean to um, engage in. And so part of the project of Entangled Empathy is to highlight um, and to make visible, as you said earlier, um, any number of relationships um, near or far, that we are in and that we can make better. So the other component of entangled empathy, empathy is empathy. <laughs> and Ooh. you say that empathy has gotten a sort of bad name in academia. It's not really taken seriously, um, maybe as a basis for ethical reasoning. Why is that and what's wrong with sort of dissing empathy? So, you know, there's a whole little cottage industry um, of, against empathy. And um, and I think that's a, that it raises a number of really interesting questions about a term, empathy, that's defined in various ways. And so, of course, if you think of empathy as simply an emotional reaction to any given situation, then, of course, there's a whole range of concerns about bias that come in and uh, psychologists and philosophers have argued that if we base our ethical reasoning or ethical frameworks on empathy, we're going to be importing all that bias. Um, and my view is, yeah, that's that's true, but that's not the empathy that I'm thinking about. When I think about empathy, I'm thinking of, as I suggested earlier, a blend of both cognition and affect emotions so that what one is doing is engaging in a, process, a reflective process of trying to see where the other 
is, what their perspective is, how they came to the situation they came to, what they might know or not know, how their um, perceptions, awareness, desires may be shaped um, and distorted by the conditions that they are in. So part of the reason I said that is oftentimes people and animals might think they want something that ultimately isn't good for them. So part of the way that I think of empathy is that it you know, it has to involve a kind of critical reflective engagement where we think of the other, but we also take a step back, not a complete impartial, you know, God's eye view, but just a step back um, and look to see what are the conditions that are around the individual that might have shaped their um, their sort of desires that would have shaped their beliefs and um, and then figure out from there what would ultimately lead to their flourishing or well-being. And the connection to flourishing and well-being has um, in many ways a connection to a type of consequentialism that's concerned about the promotion of flourishing or the promotion of well-being. I think of it in a more Aristotelian um, sense, although don't accept a kind of teleological view of this. I do think, though, that one can be committed to the flourishing or well-being of others without thinking about it being something one needs to maximize or promote. Um, but in, in in a very particular relationship with another, um, again, particular not meaning right in front of you mm-hmm. um, or um, – you know, right near you, um, but in particular in terms of circumstances, one can be committed to um, actions that are going to lead to or hopefully lead to flourishing. Um, But empathy requires that you not don't just take as a matter of fact, the desires or the feelings of the other, but you do more reflection and more of a first and third um, person or being reflection. So you go from your point of view to their point of view, back to your point of view, back to their point of view in a process that's hard. It's not an easy process, but it's a, it's a moral process. It's a, it's a process of ethical reflection. To what extent do you think having this um, experience that you talk about being, um, getting to know this chimpanzee named Emma help kind of see the sort of depths of this type of empathy that can be applied in thinking about what the animal, what what the other animal wants, what would be good for them, what do they like, what they don't like. Is it, it do you think there's a there's a reason why it had it t- took a chimpanzee rather than say a cat <laughs> or a dog? And that's a really great question. And um why did it take a chimpanzee? I think part of so just a little bit of a story about Emma. Emma was uh she was doing work um, in uh, Sally Boyson's cognition laboratory um, at Ohio State, and uh, she was uh, you know, one of the star students in this particular um, kind of weird. It was a weird quote unquote laboratory. It wasn't a laboratory that you might think of that's sterile and has cages. Of course, chimpanzees are dangerous wild animals, so they were they were enclosed. Um, And they had enclosures, but they were enclosed together. But they also had, for example, a trampoline outside that they could jump on. And 
Um, in this particular instance, Emma and another young chimpanzee named Harper and I were, and, and some of the research assistants were um, walking in the woods um, together. And Emma um, was a little bit startled by something ahead of us and grabbed my hand and jumped into my arms and um, was, you know, basically holding me. Now I, um, as I say, chimpanzees are dangerous while the animals, it's not typical that you engage with them in this way because Harper and Emma were younger. And because this was part of how things happened in this um, sort of cross fostering community, this was a while back. Um, I ended up being in a situation where none of what I would have thought to do, none of the things, none of my own interests, none of my own behaviors, none of my attitudes or beliefs were operating, she sort of took over. And, um, and it caught me so by surprise that it really forced me to have to think about her as an autonomous, and she was a child, but an autonomous being who had her own interests and desires, and had a plan and had thoughts and had all of this going on. And that just really caught me um, off kilter, as it were, it, her particularity, her immediate presence, um, her interest in me, her belief that I was protective, which was also really interesting, um, led me to have thoughts that I, I didn't, at the time, of course, I didn't have these thoughts, what's happening. Um, but, uh, over time, as I reflected on this experience and continued to interact with Emma, um, over the years. Um, she now lives in a sanctuary in Louisiana. Um, one of the things that was so remarkable about Emma, um, I would go to visit. Um, I would go visit her at the sanctuary. I haven't during the pandemic, of course, but um, I hope to go again once it's safe. But over the years, she's been living there. And the one of the founders of the sanctuary was with me one year um, during a visit. And um, as I was leaving the sanctuary, I told them I was leaving, I would come back. She sort of gathered a bouquet of, you know, weeds. There weren't really flowers growing in, the, in her enclosure, but she grabbed this bouquet of them and she handed them through, to the, through the enclosure to me. And the, Linda Brent, who was one of the founders of Chimpaven, was absolutely flabbergasted. She's worked with chimpanzees for 30 years and had never seen anything like this. Mm. Um, so there's this really remarkable, independent, autonomous thinking being, um, Emma, and many other chimps. But Emma just, um, it was hard not to get this remarkable sense of her as a complete empathetic being. So that's, I think, what led me um, to, to reflect on entangled empathy um, in ways that I hadn't done before. Now, of course, people aren't going to have that experience, and I know they are not going to have that experience. And to some extent, I feel both um, ridiculously fortunate to have had these experiences, but also I would not recommend it. It could it could be dangerous mm -hmm. to be engaged in, in, with chimps in this way. So I just ended up lucky. Many of the people I know who work with chimps on a regular basis don't have all their fingers. So I, I ended up in a very lucky experience with Emma. So I'm not endorsing it, not suggesting it's the way people should go, um, but it's definitely for, was formative for my thinking about this. And I think things like the, the film um, 
my octopus teacher is also another example of this kind of profound way in which encounters with very different others can reframe our perceptions and can reframe our understanding, not just of them, but of ourselves. I'm glad you brought this uh, film, this documentary example up, because when you were talking about your, your interaction with Emma, what I was getting was that you were experiencing an interaction with a you know incredibly sophisticated or at least emotionally you know developed um animal and when it comes to octopus and there's a lot of discussions about um you know how intelligent they are how different from us they are how they've evolved in these very peculiar ways and i was wondering whether there is a degree of of danger here that maybe doesn't exist say with the utilitarian argument that we end up valuing these animals because of these particular abilities or capacities that they have so them being very intelligent or being able to trust us and and kind of have this quite intricate relationship with uh, with human beings whereas i imagine that's not true for for all animals but you know someone might say but what what all animals have in common is that they have this kind of capacity for suffering and that's why we should be you know focusing on these more utilitarian arguments and less on on this type of argument that maybe depends a little bit too much on these animals having certain features certain levels <clears throat> of intelligence or whatever what do you what do you make of that sort of objection as it were yeah well it's interesting because typically um, the arguments that have been made by the more standard approaches like the utilitarian approach or the deontological approach does um, have tended to focus on these capacities of intelligence and suffering and sentience um, in ways that I think can t potentially be quite um hierarchical. That is mm -hmm. what, what exactly what you're getting at, that maybe there are certain animals that are like us. And so we're going to pay more attention to those animals. Um, and those that are really different from us are um, animals that we might not pay as much attention to. Um, my sense is that in the process of figuring out who's sentient, we and that's what the utilitarians are looking at, sentience as the capacity to experience pleasure and pain, um, that there is a, a, a sort of hierarchical framing there. And I think with entangled empathy, although I am I my own um my own sort of story about the origins of the of the theory come from a, a animal that is um very, very similar to us. Um, I do think that that the uh, the hope is that um that's not going to be why we're having um these kinds of um concerns about what another might be experiencing. Because as I said, fundamentally entangled empathy is a theory that is concerned about relationships of all sorts. So may even include, so that would include sort of whether or not to um, start farming octopus, which is something that is um, increasingly on uh, the food um, agribusiness's agenda. Um, so I think that this question about capacities is a really central and important one. Um, for me, I don't think entangled empathy relies on capacities. Um, it relies on a recognition of a connection that it can minimize or promote flourishing. And so that flourishing can happen whether you're um, cognitively uh, sophisticated or not 
so cognitively sophisticated, whether you're a human or whether you're non-human, whether you're capable of um, self-reflection, as we were talking about in the in the deontological tradition, or not capable of self-reflection. Um, I think that um, certainly suffering is an important capacity. Um, I don't think, and this has been a critique that I've encountered quite frequently from environmentalists, I don't think you can empathize with beings that don't have a perspective because in empathizing, you have to take the perspective of another and that first and third person, as I was putting it back and forth, requires another's perspective. Otherwise you're just projecting. Um, but that, what that means is that you can't empathize with wetlands or forests or ocean landscapes. Um, you can empathize with those beings who make those environments their home but I don't think you can you can empathize um, with the not those not let's call them non sentient or non aware or not perspective bearing beings. Um, and so, in that sense, um, it's not that I'm denying that suffering matters. It's that I think there is so much more than suffering that ultimately matters. I think maybe it's fair to say that all of these conversations around animal ethics tend to focus on the individual, right? They tend to focus on individual people and the decisions they make about what kind of food to eat. Um, and I was just wondering whether there's anything to the thought that part of the reason why we're all finding it maybe a lot harder to move to vegan diets, even though a lot of us also recognize the good reasons behind it, have to do with sort of bigger cultural systemic reasons, right? So when it comes to, say, another big problem like climate change, there's also this discussion about, you know, to what extent the responsibilities lie with the individual and to what extent the responsibilities are a lot more systemic and lie, say, with states or private companies. What do you what do you make of that? Do you think there is something in in this idea that well, one of the reasons that maybe a lot of people fi are finding it hard to you know move away from eating animals is that well, there's an abundance of of that food everywhere you go, and when you go to a restaurant, you know most of the meals will be meat meals, or that we have all grown up in a culture that you know we have a certain attachment to, and most of those cultures are meat eating cultures. Does do we need to sort of argue for a moral change at the top level as well, at sort of government level or companies level, and just you know ban certain um, types of farming, for example? Mm. Um, mm. You know, is that is that a, a thought that enters into into um, kind of um, moral philosophy when thinking about yeah. animal ethics? Thank you so much for that question. There is um, increasingly this notion of what's called the political turn in animal ethics, and it means different things in different contexts, but you're absolutely right. I mean, ethical reflection has traditionally, um, and this goes, you know, it's not just animal ethics, it's ethics more generally, has tended to focus on one's own sort of moral development, one's own moral uh, perspective and what is required of me uh, to be a person who acts with integrity, who acts on an entangled empathy, is a person that can look at myself in the mirror and see myself um, as 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 someone who is 
uh, trying to do good um, in, in, in the context of tremendous systems and structures that are profoundly um, unjust, uh, profoundly harm producing um, and environment destroying, if you will. So I think that there's a, there's both of these things are absolutely essential. And I think that increasingly thinking in terms of the, the larger uh, both social, political, and I would argue ideological commitments um, that are destroying so many uh, enjoy and destroying and harming people, destroying and harming animals and destroying um, our, our home, all of our homes. So I think that the, the question is a really profound question. Um, I don't think it's, and this happens within the, um, it's happening right now within the very topic of what we should eat. So there are a number of people who are actively working extremely hard to create these impossible burgers, mm-hmm. to create cell cultured meats, to create plant-based food stuff. And thinking the more we can have plant-based food stuff, we don't need people to make choices. We could just feed them this and they, and we could help the animals that way by not having people to have to make these decisions. Um, and while I'm not, I'm, I think there's uh, perhaps a lot more um, hope and emphasis that's going into that um, and, and a lot of money also that's going into those kind of um, changes for corporate production. Um, I do, I do think there are other ways of thinking about how these systematic structural changes can happen that might get more, deeper to the roots of the structural problem. So one of the campaigns that I've been very, very intrigued and excited by that's happening by an organization called Mercy for Animals, but I think there's another, another bunch of groups that are doing this work, they're reaching out to farmers themselves who, who in this age of um, vertical integration end up having um, the, the, these large corporations that are the primary movers of meat um, animal products in the food in the food um, sphere. They have all these small farmers doing the production work because it is actually actual animals, very dirty work, very hard work. Um, So what Mercy for Animals has been doing is trying to transform those farming operations to plant-based operations. So using the wisdom of these animal farmers and having them transition to plant-based production. Mm -hmm. This kind of thing to me sounds um, like one very promising way to go. So it's not exactly top down. It's more in some way, it's a political move, but it's more ground up. And I think the same thing could be said for thinking about um, sort of working in ways that um, happen sort of collectively. So um, a lot of students at different universities are working to make you know, meat-free Mondays or vegan Tuesdays, just like vegan January. Um, and so it's a, it's an idea to both work on something at a more systemic 
structural, political, social level, but also to engage in it in a way that gets people involved, directly involved, so that they see their agency, they see their connection, they see and are made aware of these relationships um, and are able to sort of reflect on those relationships too. And I would hope um, act in ways that will be sustainable long-term. So our final question, what's a book that you would recommend to listeners on animal ethics, on how we could change the way we think about our relationship to animals? Uh, doesn't have to be a work of philosophy, anything you would recommend in particular? Oh, there's so many that have been coming out lately. Um, and I don't know if it's fair for me to do this, but um, my colleague Alice Crary and I are just finished a book called Animal Crisis. And it doesn't deal with entangled empathy um, in the way that my book, Entangled Empathy, does, but it does deal with some of the questions um, that you raised today, which have to do with um, the more standard ways of thinking about it and why those are ideologically problematic and how we might see animals more clearly um, and then ultimately what we might do. Um, so I'd recommend looking for Animal Crisis. It'll be out in the UK in May at the end of the month. We would uh, we will certainly look out for that. Laurie Gruen, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you for listening to this week's longer episode of The Philosopher in the News. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. I always appreciate hearing feedback from you, but it also helps others find the podcast. You can also share this episode on social media to help spread the word. I'm Alexis Papazoglu, and this was The Philosopher and the News. Speak again soon.